Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Silicon Dreams on Radio Zindagi, 15.50 a.m. This is Sonia, your show host. I am the founder of Orbis86, where we are onboarding people to the exciting world of Web3 and AI. And joining me in the studio today, we have Nishchal, who is the head of product at Metajuice. Nishchal, we are really excited to have you here with us. Welcome to the Silicon Dreams. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Sonia. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here with us. So, Nishal, I would love for you to talk to our to our audiences, people who have tuned into the Silicon Dreams, and delve a little bit into your background. What have you been doing in Web three, and what did you do before you transitioned over to Web three? Absolutely. So, um, I started off my career as a consultant, as a career consultant. I worked a lot in the first decade of my career on Web two technologies, SaaS companies specifically. And then post that, and the, over the last six years, I've been working in crypto. I was uh, at a company called Ripple Labs that focused on cross-border payments, and I had up a technical team there. And after that, I was at an NFT company. And then most recently, I'm at a metaverse company where I head up everything related to token operations and their crypto products. That is exciting. So, folks, if you know the birth of blockchain was with the Bitcoin paper, which was released in 2008. And then Bitcoin was officially launched in 2009. So crypto has barely been around for a decade and a half. And Nishal has been working in the Web3 crypto space for over six to seven years now. So he definitely has a lot of experience. Crypto really started picking up worldwide momentum, I believe, in 2012, 2013, mm -hmm. when we had a lot of new chains being yep. launched. Nishal, given your background in both, Mm -hmm. the traditional finance sector, as well as what you're doing in the Web3 space. I would love for you to just talk to us about why do you think this decentralized era of Web3 was even birthed? Why do you think people felt the need that need of decentralized systems, especially starting mm -hmm. with a decentralized ledger, which is what blockchain is? Absolutely. So um, I think the birth of decentralization actually started in 2008 when Satoshi created uh, Bitcoin. So I still remember that period. I was out of school for just a few years and it was tumultuous to say the least. You know, I was in my first job and then there were so many companies that laid off people. Uh, times were really difficult. The country went through a horrible recession, probably the worst since the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Satoshi created the center. The problem um, during that time, what caused it was all the bank failures. You know, the bank had overlent, and then there was all these centralized banks that went down. People lost money in the banks, and luckily the Feds came and backstopped all of that. But just looking at the history of that, when you look at the core, the problem was the banks just had too much power. So uh, I think that was kind of the birth of Bitcoin and Satoshi uh, created Bitcoin to effectively decentralize the financial system. So that was uh, the inception or the idea of why should only the banks or you know the Federal Reserve control the money? Why can't everyone uh, have control over their own money? Uh, the the, the the whole Web3 movement kind of took off from there, where it was not just money, but why can't you own your own digital property? Uh, why can't, can't you take self-custody of that? And, you know, how do you actually own all the intellectual access, uh, assets that you create? So I think that was, uh, uh, you know, the, the early days. I would still say we are still very early. I think decentralization, cryptocurrencies obviously has a long way to go. Uh, there's still no regulations, unfortunately, in most countries. So we are still catching up. Uh, and the technology is very complex, you know, so it takes a while for people to understand. 
But once you get to know it, you can understand how how powerful it is. It's just like AI and ML. It's a very, very disruptive technology. And uh, hopefully there's, there's regulation that can foster the, the growth of the industry. It's just like, uh, you know, the internet was in the early days, in the 90s and all of that. We had very forward-looking regulation and the industry has thrived in America. And we have the Facebook, Google, Apples and Netflix of the world. So we are kind of in the 90s. We are still, you know, as a lot of people say, is in, in the dial-up era. And I think in the next bull cycle, uh, we'll, we'll see a lot more applications. Um, I know a lot of uh, founders who are working on very interesting projects. Uh, a lot of people are bringing real world assets into blockchain. So I think uh, over the next few years, you're going to see a lot of uh, protocols, a lot of companies out there. The next Googles of the world, Facebooks of the world being built on the chain blockchain. Before we move ahead, I want to touch base on what we spoke of, right? The inception of Bitcoin. So yeah. for the benefit of the audience who don't know who or what Satoshi is, Satoshi Nakamoto is actually an anonymous creator. So nobody knows whether it is a person, a group of people, a collective, an AI model, who knows, right? We don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. And Satoshi used to be active in the community. But sometime in 2012 or 2013, Correct. there was a message from Satoshi who said, the community is building, I've mm. done my job and I'm leaving. And no one has actually heard from Satoshi since then. There are some wallets that people track that they think are associated with Satoshi. Mm. But beyond that, nobody really knows who Satoshi is, whether mm. it's a single person, a guy, girl, an nobody knows anything about it and there have been a lot of theories around why it was why satoshi actually came up with the concept of bitcoin and i love the fact that you brought the financial dis the financial downfall that we actually experienced mm -hmm. in 2008 yeah and it it had a butterfly effect not just on economies within united states but economies across the globe mm -hmm. the global economy the global gdp is 96 trillion out of which 27 trillion alone today comes from united states alone mm -hmm. so for a country that generates one third of the world's gdp any financial impact here is bound to have that butterfly effect and lemon brothers collapse mm -hmm. of 2008 is still the largest recorded bankruptcy filing yeah adjusted for today's inflation rate, it was a filing of nearly $750 billion or three-fourths of a trillion dollars. What people don't check beyond it, though, is the housing market collapse was even larger. Mm -hmm. $13 trillion from yeah. the housing market were wiped out within a matter of days. Right. <laughs> so the concept of having power over your own finances, mm -hmm. your own data, mm -hmm. that is what seems to have resulted in the birth of decentralization a decentralized finance system because exactly. blockchain yeah. mm -hmm. started as a ledger, yeah. right? Like you can be your own bank, Correct. you don't need any intermediaries. Yeah. That was the idea. Do you think it is doing well, given where it started and where we are at now? Yeah, I mean, um, we could always hope for more, but uh, it's, it's a complex technology, it takes a while to understand. And because until there's more regulations around the space, um, the growth may be slower. But, uh, you know, what one thing I have noticed is there's a lot of unbanked people in the world. I was one of them when I came here first as a student. You know, I didn't have a bank account. There was no one to vouch for me. So it takes a while for you to establish credibility, establish credit so that you can get a bank account. You can start getting credit. 
So one thing that is really interesting is uh, the biggest adopters of um, crypto are very young people. There's a lot of adoption in third world countries where the banking system may not be as strong, where the cost to just move money, if I wanted to send money to someone else, it's very expensive. And uh, in my previous jobs, I've traveled to some of these countries while working on cross-border payments. And I've seen where things like remittances, remittances support a lot of countries, you know, people working in, for example, in India, a lot of people work in the Middle East, they're sending money each Can week. Can break each down month. the term remittance for the <laughs> average Joe, what is remittance? We all have heard it. What is it? No. Yeah. So remittance is uh, a scenario where there's a migrant worker, someone who's working in a different country and they're sending back money to their family or all their loved one kids or whoever a lot of listeners of radio zindagi would be familiar with that because a lot of them are from india and people mm -hmm. are sending over money to india so let's continue so with remittances which countries would did you travel to yeah so uh, one of the first uh, projects that we did was we uh, set up remittances from the us into mexico which is obviously one of the from the us i think um, it's one of the biggest remittance corridor so yes. a lot of people again workers here support families in Mexico. in Mexico and then uh, we did a lot of work in the Middle East so in the Middle East there's a lot of people from South Asia India Pakistan Bangladesh Southeast Asia Vietnam uh, there's a lot of Filipinos there and they send money typically you know they get paid weekly or bi-weekly and uh, they may not make a lot of money but they have families to support and yeah. whatever money they have they send it back to their families and unfortunately, it's very expensive even today to send money back. On average, it's anywhere, depending on which country you send money into, 6 to 8% is what you'll end up paying between the banking fees and uh, exchange rate. You know, the, the money service bureaus make money on fees. They'll charge you a fee. Plus, they have a spread on the exchange rate. So if, for example, the rupee is 81.5, you're not going to get that rate. You'll get like 82.5 or 80 three or whatever so they make money on that and on average it's anywhere from six to eight percent it's what it costs you to send money generally in a remittance it's said that at least six parties are involved exactly. in the remittance being yep. settled mm -hmm. from the sender to the receiver and everybody needs to make money along the way yeah everybody needs to make money and you know one of the things that uh, you realize as you're working on on this problem is for a lot of these people uh, for a lot of these people who are supporting their families they're spending probably two weeks a year or three weeks a year, depending on where you're sending, just to pay the intermediaries to support their families. That you know? is so right. that's the amount of work they're putting. So it's kind of like a, a tax, uh, a tax that they don't even see that they're paying to all the middlemen to send money to their loved ones. And, and it's not just that, right? If you think about it, in a lot of the countries, as you said, these people are still unbanked. So exactly, they have yeah. to walk up to Walmarts of the world or Western Union, spend yeah. time in lines there during their working hours mm -hmm. or after a long day at work. Yeah. Spend a lot of time, wait in line. Exactly. And many a times those remittances are not instantaneous. So They're their family yeah. has to wait yeah. for another day, two, three days, how much ever time it takes yeah. to settle, to collect the payment. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's that's a frustrating part. And uh, in that sense, India was much uh, ahead India of the game. India is much ahead yeah, of the game. Yeah, we have the... Uh, the UPI system there. So while we were working uh, in the Middle East, we saw a lot of migrant workers would stand in line in front of the bureau and they would be messaging with their family on WhatsApp or one of these messaging applications and their family would be there at the bank or they would, you know, they would wait till they got an SMS saying the money arrived in the account. So they'd 
wait until they receive the message, which would which could be a few minutes. But like you said, there are other countries where you could have to wait three days, four days, or up to a week to actually get money into your account. And in the meantime, you have no idea where the money is at. You know, is it reached the country, not reached the country? There is no tracking. It's a black box. Once exactly. you give it, you just have to trust the financial institution mm-hmm. to get your money safely to the person you're sending it. And there have been instances where the money has been lost and robbed. Exactly. Yep. Getting that money back is a different hassle altogether, and it mm-hmm. can take weeks to months. Yeah. To get your money reimbursed if it doesn't reach the right recipient. Yep. I believe that blockchain, because of the transparency, the absolute transparency, it just makes it so much easier. Mm-hmm. And you can see how the money is flowing. Exactly. And in the past few years we have had a concern with rising gas fees mm-hmm. because i would sometimes go on ethereum mm-hmm. and the cost to send 100 dollars could be as high as 10 to 20 dollars yeah. which was more <laughs> higher than traditional systems yeah but now we have a lot of other options to send right. money over yeah. you want to touch upon some of that yeah um ethereum was obviously the first form of programmable money um and this is where you could actually tell how you wanted your money to be used so mm-hmm. you could you know say i want this money to be used for medicines or i want to give it as a grant to someone or anything like that so maybe yeah. let's talk mm-hmm. about what bitcoin was and what ethereum Absolutely. introduced yeah because a lot of the times people think everything on blockchain exactly. is the same everything is just a new currency and either people are for it or people are against it many yeah. times people think that oh all of these new chains and ledgers that are coming up mm-hmm. they are just another way to launch another cryptocurrency correct so people can raise money and i'm not denying the fact that we have not had frauds we have yep. had a lot of fraudulent actors in this space mm-hmm. like in many other spaces right correct. we would be we would be in a good position if we did not forget what happened in 2000 with the dot com yep. burst yep. you had any any time anything is popular unfortunately you have fraudulent actors and that is when you have to filter out the good actors mm-hmm. and figure out who are the bad players yeah. but that being said would you love to touch upon how bitcoin started what exactly bitcoin was and exactly. then yeah, why sure. was ethereum such a revolutionary change mm-hmm. so bitcoin um, was pretty basic relative to some of the more advanced cryptocurrencies we see these days it was like you mentioned a ledger it was just to keep track of how much money or how much bitcoin each person owned so if sonia had two bitcoin i had you know, one Bitcoin, it would just keep track of the balances. Uh, around 2014, 2016 timeframe, there was this really young, smart, at the time he was a kid, he was on less than 18 or something, uh, called Vitalik Buterin, who came on the scene. And he was like, what if you could actually program that money? It's like money should be programmable. He um, used to write for Bitcoin. He was part exactly, of Bitcoin, Bitcoin community. Magazine, yeah. He used to write mm-hmm. for Bitcoin, Bitcoin magazine. magazine. And then he came up with the concept of the programmable money. Just for people's information, Bitcoin in its most basic form and Bitcoin, the community votes on how to update it. Mm-hmm. So it does keep getting yeah, upgraded. Exactly. But even today, not just Bitcoin, but for a lot of the a lot of these chains, mm-hmm. you don't have all financial processes baked into them. Correct. So for example, one of the things that's missing from a lot of these layer ones, layer twos also, mm-hmm. is uh, refunds. Yeah. So you can't use it for e-commerce, for example, today, right? Yeah. But with Ethereum, you mm-hmm. can program how the money flows. Exactly. Yeah. And that was the concept was you could actually program money and it was essentially programmable money. So if I wanted to give 
let's say 10 Ethereum to my daughter once she turned 18, I could write that into a smart contract and the money is going to stay locked up there when she turns 18, she'll get the money. So it was something as simple as that, that you could program a lot of things into it. And it made a lot of sense, you know, governments, for example, you see they distribute money for things like, you know, ration. in India, we have the ration system where you get ration cards, you got to prove who you are, and then you get the money released. But obviously, there's a lot of fraud and waste there. And the idea was, what if you could say, hey, you can only uh, send money, uh, send, spend this money on food, kind of like food stamps are, right? But what do you, if you could program that into the money itself? So that was the idea of Ethereum was, let's smart build a layer contracts. of smart contracts where you can, the, the creator or the person who locks that money up can say how that money can be used. And one of the key features of ledgers mm -hmm. of technology like blockchain has been the immutability mm -hmm. of the yeah. chain. And it is attributed to strong cryptography. So nobody Correct. can come in and hack and mutate the chain and yeah. fudge the transaction, so as to say. That being said, the concept of smart contracts, right? I think mm -hmm. that is very intriguing yeah. because, as you said, it brings that layer of programmability. And what it also does is a smart contracts. Uh, there are upgradable smart contracts, but there are parts of a smart contract that are completely immutable. Exactly. And you can also mm -hmm. just deploy immutable smart contracts. Mm -hmm. But one of the most interesting things here is there is no human interaction involved. So you're creating a trustless ecosystem, mm -hmm. which is actually more trustworthy, <laughs> right? Because you can see, you can look at the smart contract and tell exactly what will happen. Mm -hmm. So for example, the, the case of the ration card, yeah. the rationing that you spoke of, if money was fed into a smart contract, a smart mm -hmm. contract without any prejudice, without any bias, without taking any bribe, mm -hmm. would give it to the person who proves that they are eligible Correct. to get a portion of the ration yeah. and the smart contract can be programmed mm -hmm. to figure out what that percentage is supposed to be yeah right yeah. and the most important thing is this person gets it directly in their wallet correct so there is no money interchanging mm -hmm. yeah. hands with a lot of middlemen involved yeah and you can see that entire flow mm -hmm. on chain yeah this introduces a lot of forums to battle corruption, exactly. create real-time processing systems, mm -hmm. right? Where again, it's not just remittances, but yeah. just a peer-to-peer -peer trustless, Correct. however, a more mm -hmm. trustworthy system where sending money, receiving money becomes very easy. Mm -hmm. We were talking about India, right? Mm -hmm. We were talking yeah. about India's adoption of digital payments. Yeah. How do you compare that to blockchain, to Web3? Yeah, so I always tell people um, if blockchain, you know, once it gets to the masses, it would be what UPI in India right now is. Um, in India, you see street vendors, your Chaiwala, your Telewala, Panipuriwala, everyone is on UPI. Yep. And uh, we were in the in Europe uh, a couple of months back and we used this touchless system. And my wife was like, oh, we wish we had this in America everywhere because not all the stores here have touchless. And I was like, the NFC thing. Exactly. NFC where you just touch the card, whereas a lot of stores here like Walmart still, they you got to insert they the are card. Upgrading now. They're in the process of upgrading, yes. but we felt like the US is behind on payments. And yes. then I was like, in Europe, NFC has been around for a while, yeah, even for a long time, even, even for the Bart equivalent, right? You don't uh -huh. have to necessarily get a clipper card. Exactly. You can pay with your Google Pay directly. Exactly. But when you look at India, that's leagues ahead because there's no even touching a card. There's just a QR code. You scan the QR code. You can pay anyone who's on that system. 
And the beauty about UPI is it's not just the banks. Um, in the US here, obviously, we have the Venmo and Zelles, which is a few banks who are working together to set that up. But, but they anyone, have transaction fees. Involved. They have transaction fees. They have limits, I think $3,000 a week or something like that on Zelle. And then you have to be registered with Zelle and things like that. But with UPI, it's set up across by NPCI and any banks like Google pays on it. You could be a payment technology company. You can offer UPI. I believe BMAP, you could do it without a bank account as well. So they have managed to even bring like the unbanked, you know, the Chaiwala who never had a bank account. He can now accept payments. And one of the beautiful, uh, one of these things I heard on a show recently was all these people that were giving uh, all the toffee companies out of business because whenever <laughs> you didn't have small change, you typically give there a toffee in return. There has been a case study, <laughs> which is an interesting case study, right? That then yeah. that business has actually gone down in India ever uh -huh. since you've had these digital forms of payments being widely accepted. Exactly. The business of the toffee companies has actually gone down, wow. which is interesting. And the other thing is that India is integrating with partner countries, like I believe Singapore Correct. and other countries, yep. where mm -hmm. UPI is now being accepted yeah. as a form of payment, which exactly. is a huge thing. Globally, I believe 30 to 40 percent of world's digital transactions mm -hmm. are actually processed on India's infrastructure, on UPI. Yeah. And the second largest country processing digital remittances, I believe, China. Correct. That is way behind at about 17%. Exactly. Yeah. And China, I think, was uh, one of the first ones to get into digital payments. But India has raced ahead ever since UPI was introduced. And back when we were working on remittances, we still had RTGS, NEFT. They're still around, IMPS. And even NEFT was much better than a lot of the other systems within an Net hour yeah better than a yeah lot within of an hour you'd have money in your account now i think it's like 30 minutes so within 30 minutes of you actually sending it was very quick it was very quick but then uh, I, uh upi took has taken it to a whole different level yes and the beauty about upi is it's free so it's free for everyone uh and people actually that don't even feel the most important exactly. thing right mm -hmm. like you know i know you spoke about zell and venmo but it is still very cumbersome Correct. when you go to a vendor mm -hmm. and they say hey you can you can buy this with Zelle. Yeah. Now you have to log into your bank app, yeah. open Zelle, ask them what their number is. Yeah. Right. Um, on with Venmo, it's probably a little less cumbersome because you can load up Venmo and you can scan the QR code. Yeah. And with Google Pay integration in India, the UPI integration, it's exactly the same. Exactly. Across the stores or the dealers, you just have somebody with their QR code. Correct. And they tell you to scan that QR code mm -hmm. and immediately send them the payment, which yeah. makes it so yeah. much easier yeah not as cumbersome as some of the systems that we have here so venmo is not that widely accepted Correct. for checkouts however mm -hmm. the one thing that people may or may not know because a lot of us use venmo for personal payments and we don't mm -hmm. pay any transaction fees but the moment venmo is used by merchants they have they to have pay to transaction correct. processing fees, which yeah. is at least 2.7%. Exactly. It might not be as high as 6 to 8% that sometimes yeah. Amex and these gateways charge. Yeah. But it is 2.7%. However, with UPI, mm -hmm. there are absolutely no payment fees. Exactly. There's no payment fees even for merchants. And that's exactly. where uh, you see... Uh, you know, when crypto gets mainstream and there's cheaper technologies out there, faster blockchains, which can process for cheaper, it will essentially look like UPI. Whereas a Chaiwala, if he sends, sells uh, a Chai for 10 rupees, he gets he exactly doesn't, yeah, he gets it right away. Maybe 9.998 rupees. Exactly. You don't but have to give 30 paise to a payment company. Yes. Or more than that. More than that. Yeah. To process that. Yes, for smaller businesses, that is, that has always been unfair. Correct. Smaller mm -hmm. businesses tend to pay 
much higher fees than larger yeah. businesses because they have lesser volume exactly they cannot negotiate those discounts and for a really small businessman who's um, you know someone who's selling vegetables on the street it never made sense to get a payment terminal except credit cards they would never get an account open to begin with right but upi has completely revolutionized it where they can set up that for free all they need is a smartphone right to have a qr code ready you can scan it and i've seen recently i think they even have like a speaker which will give a readout of how much was actually credited to your account yes the speaker just goes off immediately Correct. so the merchants yeah. know that okay much, the money yeah. was sent exactly. that's some really simple but cool use yeah. of technology right that we yeah. are seeing there here we know we have square for example mm-hmm. even square doesn't have technology like that Correct. you go to a food cart or something you spend at least 2 minutes processing Correct. the payment yeah. even with square yeah. square or any pos that they have right yeah. you spend at least 2 minutes over there it's mm-hmm. not really that instantaneous but more importantly with these small businesses with systems like this they easily end up being anywhere between 3 to 7% correct right mm-hmm. when they are working with all of these pos systems as you said they cannot really negotiate yeah. now in the grand scheme of things they decide to turn it into a business expense yeah but for even for any small business it's even making $10,000 a month mm mm-hmm. a lot of the times they are break even is very close to 10000 right unless you make a lot of money mm-hmm. your break even tends yeah. to be very close to the money you make so yeah. these people a lot of the money that comes goes in expenses yeah so 3 to 8% of mm-hmm. that total amount 300 yeah. to 800 is actually a lot yeah it's a lot and uh, you know uh, you look at like you mentioned the chai wala or the vegetable vendor on the street right they have a lot of com- competition their margins are super slim and you know that 3 or 6 or 8% whatever that is could be make and break for them exactly so this really makes a difference for the marginalized people the people at you know the very bottom of the social scale who are just trying to make a living so uh, they get access you know once they they actually build even if they don't have a, uh, an account they can actually build history and they can in the future get access to credit they can get access to microfinance there's all these possibilities that are opened up that they would never have gotten before if they just strictly dealt with cash. And I know we spoke about how blockchain is mm-hmm. and DLTs are yet to catch up with yeah. with full remittances, e-commerce, okay. financial systems. However, one of the things that has now been around for a couple of years or more are different lending protocols on Correct. chain. Mm-hmm. And these lending protocols are again not biased with your history. Correct. There is there are smart contracts mm-hmm. monitoring them. Yeah. So the process is very clear mm-hmm. you have absolute transparency into what is needed yeah and if you lock up how much are you going to pay Correct. how can you get back the item you have locked up mm-hmm. so those lending protocols are adding a new layer of transactions and they are Correct. also bringing in a new audience yeah. into the web3 era yeah. the one thing i wanted to talk to you about though was uh, we were talking about people leveraging all of this tech for finance right mm-hmm. we have been talking about these financial ecosystems um there's also a huge talk mm-hmm. when we talk about web3 right web3 is a group of decentralized systems mm-hmm. so we are not building conglomerates we are rather Correct. empowering the yeah. community a lot of talk on web3 has also been around data ownership correct mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that Uh, so that's uh, the reason why I got more passionate about the space as I was working through it is uh, when the whole concept of non-fungible tokens came around because a lot of people dismiss it and rightfully so saying people are they don't uh, want monkey pictures yeah monkey pictures you guys are just trading monkey pictures 
but the concept of uh, digital ownership is very powerful right now all of our data is controlled by one of the big companies it's either facebook google uh net amazon all of these companies who essentially sell them you know so they sell it to advertisers and uh, you know there's that saying that if you don't know what the product is then you are the product then you are the product exactly. yes so you're being monetized your data is being monetized depending on your youtube history what you're watching you'll get served up ads which cater to that and advertisers pay a lot of money to serve you those ads so uh, this is obviously the creator so when you look at a company like youtube for example they have a platform and they effectively take a tax it could be like a 40 50% tax on every Higher video that's that, there generally, yeah because it's Correct. a black box so mm -hmm. you don't know how you never much know they and you know you can go by the numbers and, yeah. Yeah. and you have to hit a certain number of subscriber accounts views Correct. every month mm -hmm. in order to get a small piece of that monetization yeah if you don't hit it you're not going to get anything but yeah. youtube is still going to collect revenue they're still going to collect revenue from your data and then you look at who's actually doing all the hard work Uh, being a creator is a very difficult job you're going there you got to keep making videos every day you got to keep stay posting relevant. stay relevant post important content and a big part of their earnings actually come to things like sponsorships or you know partnerships with other companies yes. youtube cannot you know entirely pay for the lifestyle and we always look at you know the top 5 or 10 creators and say hey they're so rich and they made so much so money and mr. mr beast we look at mr beast but you know there's a ton so there's probably hundreds of thousands of creators who didn't make it or who can't even make enough although their videos may be engaging they don't have the number of views as some of the top 10 so um, effectively these people are the people who are working the most but who are also not making that much it's it's youtube or the company in the middle facebook who's harvesting the data selling it to advertisers and monetizing it the other part um, the real problem also is um, there's no rules around it so if you make content that they may deem offensive or inappropriate or they don't like you for whatever reason you could be deplatformed and for a creator who's making his living this way it's like losing their job right their primary way of earning a living if mr d yes. mr beast was deplatformed you can imagine what's going to happen right well he has stuff. a lot of people who will rally in his support Correct, and, they will and and push, then yeah. the platform mm -hmm. would probably reinstate him again but there are a lot of creators who don't have that who don't have that exactly they work very hard to hit their milestones the first mm -hmm. 100 subscribers 1000 subscribers yeah. 10000 subscribers and i have seen these companies even take down accounts with 30 40000 subscribers yeah. Yeah. and the creators not able to get, get back, back those accounts Correct. and they have to start all over again yeah. from mm -hmm. scratch the worst thing is once you're deplatformed you don't even get access to the platform to get your data off of the platform correct <laughs> and uh, you don't even know who your you know subscribers are so if you wanted to go to a different platform and all of that everything you is controlled by the middleman yeah that is why when it comes to marketing all mm -hmm. of the companies they push they push everyone who is marketing to an audience to collect correct. their email ids yep. right because people might still dismiss email as hey you know it's done mm -hmm. however email marketing is still one of the more effective correct. forms effective forms of marketing mm -hmm. and having your subscribers email list is actually very invaluable very yep. because to, as you said right if you're moving platforms correct. let's say you're not very happy with all the cage fight between elon musk <laughs> and mark zuckerberg and you're like oh you know they could they could keep running their dick measuring contest yeah. <laughs> actually in a family friendly station shouldn't be doing that but that's been the talk of the town these yeah. days on twitter and i feel like 
what has the world come to Correct. if this is what mm-hmm. the ceos are talking about that yeah. let's host a contest for, for yeah. measuring yeah. anatomical yeah. body parts i'm like okay what's happening <laughs> are we really in a truly progressive world yeah but if you want to move from twitter to another decentralized platform yeah. like blue sky mm-hmm. which i don't know how many people know about it but it is jack dorsey's latest twitter mm-hmm. version <laughs> which is decentralized yeah and uh, it's uh, by invite only so a lot yeah. of people are looking for invitations for blue sky but if you yeah. want to move from twitter to blue sky you have to build your audience all over again uh, from scratch it is yeah. decentralized yes but you have to keep posting on twitter and hope that twitter doesn't ban you because in between twitter mm-hmm. had uh, even banned link trees right uh, so you could not have url correct. shorteners yeah. in your in your profile yeah. especially if the url shorteners mm-hmm. that bio page had mm-hmm. links to other platforms yeah so you are at the mercy of these platforms correct. even though you are the one who has brought them users exactly and what you mentioned there sonia was very important is uh, the platforms have unwritten rules around what they'll censor or not censor or what they'll do um and they, it's up to their whims or fancies and there's no way to contest it it's not like you can take the platform to court and say reinstate my account or things like that because and every if, time with a new upgrade we are correct. agreeing to the terms and, and conditions the terms and conditions and then if elon and zuckerberg can do whatever they want because that's their platforms whereas the rest of us cannot right so it's a different set of rules for different people and what you said before was also very important as blockchain is uh, immutable it doesn't get affected by human emotions the ethereum community likes to say code is law so whatever is in the smart contract is what the law is right and with these decentralized social media platforms i think there's still more time before they go mainstream but you essentially are in control of your own destiny you could have your digital identity you could move to a different platform you can take all of those things with you because you have your own digital identity and you're not going to get shut down because whatever you said is not uh, does not agree with the rules of the platform and then you can engage directly with the audience there's no middleman or there's no person in the middle or entity in the middle that one sets their own rules and then um, takes a cut out of every dollar you earn so these are um, i think technologies which are again very early um, they got quite a ways to go but you know they, even from an experience perspective uh, it took youtube a long time to get as uh, as as seamless and nice as we have as we see it now uh, likewise for netflix i still remember getting dvds in the mail so it's taken them a good 15 years or so to get to where they are at now and it took them time to get more content and you know obviously more material on the platform that people want to view so decentralized social media is in very early days you know i know and, everybody yeah. has been talking about the ai hype uh-huh. and ai is real Correct. you know it's not like ai is going anywhere i am quite tired of people comparing ai versus web3 because yeah. they are both <laughs> tech stacks Correct. you don't have to compare you don't have to choose one versus the other yeah. they are both going to work mm-hmm. seamlessly together in building the kind of systems you want to build yeah. for example uh, web3 transparency and immutability Correct. can add a layer of governance to ai because mm-hmm. all of us are afraid about how ai is going to work and a lot of the ai systems today are black boxes correct but mm-hmm. smart contracts you know if the ai systems were also governed by smart contracts you could mm-hmm. see how these ai systems are functioning yeah. and what are the decisions that are being made that could be put on chain correct. right mm-hmm. and there would be transparency so i don't look at ai versus web3 however ai mm-hmm. in the concept of ai started all the way back in like 19 
40s or 50s right with Correct. the initial conversations that started in Europe where you had a groups yeah. of scientists come together mm-hmm. uh, you had the turing machine which yeah. the enigma mm-hmm. code right yeah. remember imitation games which was from world war 2 Right. It's that old. AI mm-hmm. is that old and today we are talking about AI hype. Mm-hmm. Yes, this hype is driven by a new form of AI through transformers. Right. But what we have to see, you know, we have to think about the evolution. Yeah. AI has not revolutionized the industry in the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. It has done that over a period of 70 plus years. Yeah. Also when we talk about internet, mm-hmm. we all feel like oh, you know, the internet has taken the world by storm. Yes, it has taken the world by storm and a lot of blockchain is actually dependent Correct. on the internet yeah. in mm-hmm. fact people are now looking at alternate methods where you know they could still process transactions off chain yeah. so there isn't an inherent dependency on internet but as you said we are still early, early. the reason i'm mentioning this is because bitcoin decentralization blockchain really started in 2008 mm-hmm. internet the birth of internet is considered to be in 1983 and then publicly it was available to people yeah. in 1993 mm-hmm. so even with the internet and all of these businesses that have been built it has been in the works since 1983 yeah it's not something anything that feels like an overnight success is not an overnight success right exactly it doesn't get adopters overnight yeah it's all thanks to years and decades of work that has been done exactly. i just wanted to present that perspective we are talking about data ownership here mm-hmm. right Now we spoke about how these advertisers when we are giving our data to these platforms mm-hmm. these platforms make money from it correct what would be the web3 version of these platforms can you help explain it to the audiences of the silicon dreams and radios and the yeah absolutely so the web3 version over the long term will look very similar to the web2 version so once we have like a web3 youtube Um, I know there's a protocol called Lens as well that's working on like a social graph type of network. It should, you know, uh, ideally over the long term look exactly like you'd be using Facebook or Twitter or any other network, Blue Sky as well. So for the end user, the experience should be seamless. The difference being when you log into it or you're a creator and you log in, your identity. Right now, your identity is held by Facebook, and then you log in through Facebook through other um, through other applications, or that's where your quote digital identity lives. but you could be with a decentralized protocol where you control your own identity or digital identity and then you can log into any app whether it's a video streaming app or if it's a social network you're taking your identity identity to all these platforms so you don't have to go onto a new platform like you mentioned and then build 100,000 users or email them saying hey I'm you know YouTube deep platform me I'm going to go to the other uh, you know I'm going to go to Facebook live or whatever that is uh your digital identity is uh with you it carries over to a different platform and uh what blockchain technology does is there's a concept of public and private keys and you're the only you're the owner of the private key so you can decide you know what you're going to do you kind of control your destiny you can take your audience to a different platform if you wanted you could go to as a creator as a person who's keeping your audience engaged you go to any uh platform to get your content out and what that does is effectively sets up a very competitive system right now uh technology is very monopolistic you know fang facebook apple amazon netflix the and fangs. google kind of control everything you know they have the power but let's say you're a creator or you're a person who's super popular on facebook or twitter and you decide to move on to a different platform there's nothing you can do right you cannot reach your audience directly but once you had that power through digital identity 
which blockchain technology enables, you could go to any platform. So even these marketplaces will be competitive. You know, they'll want to ensure that they're competitive to come uh, to get you onto their platform to build content for them. So you could go to TikTok, for example, without having to go and build the audience again from scratch. You know, if you to beat platforms, or if TikTok doesn't like you tomorrow, you could go back to, you know, a another platform and you could take your audience with you. So that's kind of the entire idea of Web3 is the platforms have less power and they're mainly, you know, streaming content or they're giving you like a forum to put your content out and they don't take as much of a cut as the current platforms do and they don't set the rules either. Yeah, and then a lot of these platforms would be governed by contracts. So Correct. you can actually be, there is transparency in understanding how much are you, how much is the platform earning versus how much uh -huh. is the creator earning. Most Web3 platforms, I have seen them uh, keep their cuts to as low as 10 to 20% and mm -hmm. it is visible on the blockchain yeah. and you can see what whether they are charging more or they are charging lesser. Mm -hmm. Even as a consumer, I feel there is a lot of power when mm -hmm. you go on these platforms. I feel as a consumer, especially that data ownership and right to privacy yeah. is important for these platforms. So what will happen is when we go in as a consumer to any of these platforms, mm -hmm. we will be able to actually set the Correct. rules that which data would I like to be targeted yeah. on. Mm -hmm. I may not like to be targeted based on my relationship status, yeah. but if I am looking for holiday packages, my mm -hmm. browsing history, you know, I don't mind being targeted on that because I like a good vacation deal. Who doesn't yeah. like a good vacation deal? So you're able to do that. Plus you're able to see who all gets access to the data because Correct. that is important. Mm -hmm. When I give my access to Facebook, we have seen cases like the Cambridge yeah. analytics case right yeah. where that data was being used for political targeting mm -hmm. right yeah. and that was such a big and they, they got away with a slap on the wrist that's yeah. literally what i'm going to say mm -hmm. you know because for the manipulation that mm -hmm. was <laughs> caused because of that data they really got away with a slap on the wrist however in blockchain you should as long as the data does not leave the dlt it does not mm -hmm. leave the blockchain mm -hmm. you can see who all has access to the data and with Correct. new systems that are being built. Mm -hmm. Let's say if your data is being sent to political parties, Correct. you could actually revoke Correct. access to your mm -hmm. data. Yeah. And I feel that is very important for consumers as well. You know, we Correct. have creators where, as you said, the creators can take their identity and part mm -hmm. of that identity is also the content that they create. Correct. A lot of these platforms, the content created by the creators stays with the creators. Exactly. And as users, you have a lot more control over your privacy. Correct. Over, again, also your identity. Yeah. Nishal, this was such an amazing conversation. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up because we are at the end of the show. I would love for you to share a few parting thoughts uh, you know, with our audiences of the Silicon Dreams on Radio Zindagi before we officially bid farewell. Yeah, absolutely. So I would just say, uh, you know, uh, this is all very disruptive technology, AI, uh, crypto it's uh going to take time so we will definitely i'm, I'm confident uh, that we'll see widespread adoption of these technologies in my lifetime and these are very transformative technologies so uh, we got to be patient uh, we won't see the results right away just like every other technology and they've been in the works for a very long time so uh, you know hang in there <laughs> and uh, keep up to speed with it um, it's going to revolutionize our, our lives in the future
Well, thank you, Nishchal. So the parting message, guys, you know, keep your eyes wide open. Be open to the power of these transformative technologies. Stay in the know and we will bring you more episodes to help you stay in the know on AI and Web3 on the Silicon Dreams on Radio Zindagi 1550 AM. Until we meet next time on Monday, this is Sonia, your show host and the founder of Arbus 86, signing off. Take care and have a great week ahead.